Marketing ain't what it used to be. Whether you're a CEO of a large corporation, director of an SME, or solopreneur, getting your marketing message out has never been more important than it is today, when we are all so distracted. Lockdown may mean that we have far more time on our hands than ever before, but we also have way more things prodding and grabbing at our attention every second of the day. Oops, there goes another notification. Today's guest, Barnaby Winter, is a leading marketing expert, keynote speaker, founder of the brand Bucket Company, author and serial entrepreneur. He's also a huge Chelsea fan, but I won't hold that against him for now, and founding Freeman of the Guild of Entrepreneurs. Barnaby's been around long enough to have experienced the winds of change across the marketing industry. And as marketing guru Seth Godin says, he understands that truly powerful marketing is based on empathy, generosity, emotional labor, and giving of value. Listen in as Barnaby drops some real value nuggets of his own in this wide-ranging conversation, as well as his two favorite London places. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favorite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favorite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says Guests' Favourite Places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. So I'm delighted to have on the Your London Legacy podcast this morning, the one and only Mr. Barnaby Winter. Good morning, Barnaby. How are you this morning? I'm very well, Steve. Good morning to you. Great to be here. Uh, although the weather not brilliant today, I don't think, in London. It's it's not great. We, we've we been blessed, actually, haven't we? I mean, April and May, I think it was April and May. I don't know where the days <laughs> roll into one another. But I think April and May were, were stonkingly warm and sunny and Maybe even the sunniest on record, I think. I, don't know. I, I think that's right. Yeah. So had we been allowed to go and see it, it would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the, we spent lots of time in the garden and going on lovely walks. But um, we, yeah. we're still. are you still locked down? I mean, who, who, if so, who are you locked down with presently? So I, I, I am blessed with being the only non-key worker in the building. So we have uh, my wife is a, a medical director of the Outer Hours Service. Uh, my eldest daughter is back with us now, having finished her medical degree, is now working in a hospital. We have another doctor staying with us who's also working in a hospital. My other two daughters, who were kicked out of university early, are both working in supermarkets, packing shelves and online bags for shopping. So we have the strangest. Uh, and then we have uh, one boyfriend that joins us who is in the RAF. So everybody's a key worker except me. So I'm the only one that's been banging a saucepan on a Thursday night up until very recently. Banging a saucepan for them. <laughs> yes, for All indeed. the good work that they're doing, amongst <laughs> other things. Yeah. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So, Yeah, it's, it, it, it's strange times. And obviously, a part of the conversation today will be how these strange times and, and the times that led up to these particular, the, the new normal, has uh, affected marketing. Because marketing is, is your bag, is what you're, uh, what you're expert at and in. The brand bucket, amongst other things, we talk about branding and marketing. Now, this isn't a branding or marketing podcast, but we we talk to people who are doing good 
good, interesting, fascinating things in and around London. And although, again, you don't live in London presently, most of your working life, as I understand, has been in London. And most of your clients, I suspect, are London-based corporates and businesses and solopreneurs yeah. and whatever you want to call them. Absolutely. So give us give us a bit of background about your your London heritage, first off. Well, so so I, I'm a, I'm a, a Cotswolds country bumpkin, and my father was born in Chislehurst and grew up there, and spent his whole life uh, up until went to agriculture college and spent all his life trying to get out of London. Of course, being the child only child of an only child, my only desire was to get into London as soon as possible. So the moment I left university, I went straight into a career in advertising. So I've actually been based in London for, for over 35 years now, entirely. And left university, which I went to in Scotland, went straight into uh, uh, to London to work in uh, for nothing for an advertising agency in Portman Square, uh, where I worked on the Abbey National account. And they then offered me a job in research, uh, which I absolutely didn't want to do. I had decided I wanted to become what's known in the advertising industry as a suit or a bag carrier, both derogatory terms. Uh, referencing account handlers and account directors and account managers. So I moved from there to a uh, agency in Farringdon on the Farringdon Road. Um, Very well. Uh, in Lecter Court, where I, I launched the Fiat Ducato, the Fiat Fiorino, Weber Carburetors, Saab Scania Trucks, and RJ Hall Car Leasing. So I had a CV to die for if I wanted to. Uh, pursue a career in the second largest purchase we'll ever make, which is your which is your car. But I took on my first mentor then, which is really important, I think. And he said, well, you could either do that or you could you could become a, a specialist generalist. I said, okay, what's well, one of those? He says, well, you work across lots of different uh, types of accounts and as a result, uh, be able to advise business when you're later on in your career. So, well, that sounds interesting. What should I do? And he said, you do own a, a Vespa scooter and a VW Beetle Cabriolet, don't you? And I said, I do. He said, well, you are not a motorhead. Um, so I wouldn't pursue the car thing. Um, you won't enjoy going to all the car stuff. So I pursued the generalist specialist or specialist generalist route. That's an IBM phrase. And um, got a move to Ogilvy Mather, which was the world's largest uh, advertising or one of the fifth largest advertising agency at the time uh, in their, their offices in Bretnam House on Waterloo Bridge and relaunched the Ford Sierra and launched the Ford Granada and then ended up launching Argos and Radion Washing Detergent and Lipton Ice Ice Tea Worldwide. And so I was there five and a half years before, during which they moved the offices from Bretnam House to Canary Wharf. And Canary Wharf, of course, was in phase one, Cabot Square only. Um, at the time, it was 20% occupied, and there were loads of people rumoured to be coming, including people like American Express, but they never came. So it was it was absolutely like a, a mutiny on the battle. It was just nothing on the on at Canary Wharf at all. It was two shops. Uh, there was what, a, what year are we talking about here? This is in the 80s, I guess. No, so this would have been 90, early 90s, 90, 90s. Yeah, 91, 92, I think. So, so I started my career in the mid 80s, but uh, but but certainly. That the Canary Wharf phase was in the very early nineties, and actually, I was um, I was on the moving committee, and uh, one of my, my my fascinating experiences we as the moving committee we revolved we were invited over to Canary Wharf while they were building it, and we were taken to the very top floor of one I think it's called One Canada Square, the very tall pointy building which is HSB, and we were taken onto the top floor where there were no windows. And so we were stood on this, literally this concrete shell, uh, 
all hard hatted up and everything and we weren't allowed within sort of 10 feet of the edge of the building which had no window so we stood there looking out over this most amazing view of london of course at the time and um uh so we we uh we did that and then so i was at ogilvy's for five and a half years i didn't like canary wharf at all i found it absolutely draining as a place i mean it's nothing like it is today of course but uh then there was two or three shots. There was a one sandwich bar. I think there was an Obotikaro, which was like a Brazilian beauty thing and a pen shop. I think that was all there was there for, for, for a shopping point of view. And, but we were allowed to park under the building because there was no the huge car parks, but we all were allowed to drive our cars in and park under, underneath. Anyway, so I then moved back into Soho uh, to launch uh, Boots Opticians, Red Stripe Lager, and various other sort of internet-y things in a, in a little creative uh, agency in, in, in Frith Street. Uh, then left there after three weeks, went round to uh, Stamford Street to work in another agency with a very, very famous creative called David Trott. And from there, I was headhunted to become the youngest MD in 1999 of a top 200 advertising agency in uh, Clerkenwell. So back in Clerkenwell, almost where I started my career. And I bought that company in June 2001. got severely flummoxed by the events of September 11th because we'd launched things like uh, E-Trade, which was the world's largest online, became the on largest online broker as a result of our work. Um, but it was American. We had Book and Technology, the world's largest optical components company, which was American. We were working with Deutsche Post, who, who, who uh, we'd launched throughout the UK. And all of them closed down after September 11th, the events of September 11th. So, so we were in, we were in deep trouble. So in 2002, we embarked, we had a team of 25. We embarked on a journey to reconfigure marketing because we realized that nothing in marketing that as we'd understood up to that point was working anymore. Uh, the broadcast industry was beginning to die. Um, the online arena had really not taken off. Exhibitions didn't really work. Direct mail wasn't working. Email blasts weren't working. And we, and we were just sitting there going, what do we do for our clients? So we, we embarked on a six-month journey to come up with a formula for marketing success. And it was all very exciting. Anyway, that job was completed seven years later in uh, in 2008. Um, Take your time over it then. <laughs> don't, don't ever start a project where you don't really know what you're doing. Because every time we... You don't know what the deliverables are. No, exactly. So... And the outcome of that was actually you didn't need a, a, a big fancy building because nobody came to it anymore. Uh, everybody's working online. So we moved the whole concept to the cloud. So we now have a cloud-based agency, um, which I which I oversee, huge network of different agencies and suppliers and stuff like that, but all, all working from the centre of, of London. And what's interesting about that is there are now so many places that you can have amazing meetings in London. So uh, so I became I've become members of clubs i'm part of a a thing called homegrown which is a, a a private members club for for uh entrepreneurs um that's just opened and it, it's it's a really exciting are you talking about physical places to yeah, meet yeah so you, you meet oh yes well okay let's 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 us let's us pretend that none of this has happened <laughs> um, but so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just we'll get just up to march <laughs> up to march yeah so so there are lots and lots of great uh, hotels and, and obviously, you know, things like WeWork have popped up and all that sort of thing. So some really great places. So you can now operate a business without having your own premises, which I know a lot of people will be really seriously thinking about now if they've got a huge overhead of a, of a building where they're going to have to be able to sit everybody two metres apart and things like that. So my whole journey is now, and then, of course, inevitably you build a reputation in, 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 the, in London and, uh, as a result, most of my work is there, so and always has been. 
So apart from where you live, you're, you're London-centric. Your life has been based in and around London for, for many, many years. So you know all about it. And we'll, we'll come back to that and some of the personal places in London that mean, mean things to you towards the end of our, our chat. But let, let's go back to basics for a second. Obviously, your, your life is grounded in marketing. What is the difference between marketing and sales? I mean, you must have been asked that question a million times, but there's still many, many people out there, I guess, many people listening to the podcast today who won't have a clue what the difference is. They think it's one and the same, but there are there is a huge difference. I'd like to hear it from an expert. So if you can put that succinctly, that'll be helpful. Yeah, so I, th- I think I'd, so. I'm, I'm slightly controversial on, on, on this because I don't believe sales exists anymore. So I think the, the, so the first position on this is I think that everything is now marketing. And I have always perceived sales to be a part of marketing. So I, I can hear anybody listening in screaming if they're involved in this right now. The difference is we marketing is about creating the experiences um, which enable people to formulate a relationship with a product or a service. And what's changed over my career is where before it was dominated by advertising and broadcast media and sort of shouting out things like USP and things like that. Today, it's much more about affecting every part of a business system and a process so that actually enables people to really embody the relationship they have with the product or service. The thing about sales is it is less uh, it's more transactional in what it's about. It's about enabling people to effectively part with their cash for a product or a service. Now, good salespeople, really good salespeople, are really marketers because they know how to go and formulate and start relationships, nurture them, bring them into, in my world, the bucket, but bring, uh, bring them into the relationship with a, with, with a product or service and help them over the line, get the money out of them. But where, where sales singularly fails for me is it's only about that that sort of conversion point the point between i've kind of i'm interested in your product okay let me explain how it will work for you let me take the money off you and then you you get shunted into after sales so the thing about sales is they recognize that there's pre-sales which they used to call marketing sales and after sales whereas i think marketing is much more the whole relationship maintaining it so actually if you if you've had a uh, somebody buying from you for five years, you should be marketing them to them in exactly the same way as you did before they were they they were they were a prospect. Whereas with sales, probably they drifted off to the next thing. So for me, sales is very transactional. It's very about uh, converting. Now, actually, what's interesting is marketing people are very d- bad at converting people into the sale. They're very bad at it. So you you do need that that group of people who are just you know straight in and say let's do the deal. Let's take your money. Let's do all that. So, because if you're any good at relationships, you'll, you you can't ask for money. <laughs> it's just you can't do it. It's just it's not in your in your mix. So I think the difference is that marketing's about building uh, long, robust relationships with products and services. With sales, is about the transactional aspect of of making that happen, getting the money, and, and converting it. That's a very yeah. simplified view of it. No, it's, it, it's interesting, and also I think you, we spoke when we spoke previously about the emotional aspect of um of marketing as well building up that rapport that emotional relationship with the uh, 
I don't like the word prospect. It's some, it, it makes to me, it makes it very transactional, but with your prospective client or customer. And I, I, I saw on the on your bookshelf behind you, we spoke about this briefly last time. You've got the same book as I have by the uh, the marketing guru, Seth Godin or Godin. Yes. Um, and just looking inside the, the flat, there was an interesting quote here. So this is from his book, This is Marketing. Interesting, the subtitle there is, you can't be seen until you learn to see which is interesting. But in the inside flap here, if I can find the relevant bit, he puts, um, yeah, so the best marketers, they don't just make noise, they make the world better. Truly powerful marketing is grounded in generosity, empathy, and emotional labor. And that goes to, I think, what you were saying when we spoke previously about building that emotional rapport with the uh, the prospect again for want of a better word well so yeah and actually if, if you're uncomfortable with the word prospect i would use the word buyer because you can be a buyer before purchase you can be a buyer during the purchase you can be a buyer after because and i think one of the one of the things that a lot of sales people forget is the relationship must be continued after people have bought it's actually the key point when i hand over my hard-earned money for for your product or service that actually ultimately um, I'm really measuring how you deliver against the relationship at that point. I'm very emotional about it because I've given you part of my life. I've, I've worked for the money uh, and, and now I'm giving you part of the, 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 the time that I spent getting that money in the first place. So and there, there, I, we, we tend, all decisions have both emotional and rational aspects to it. But I will not buy from someone I don't like, however good their product is. Um, and actually, that's really useful to know uh, from a marketing point of view, because what you can do is create brand presence that actually puts most people off. Um, because one of the problems that uh, the, the new digital economy, the new knowledge economy has is everybody's on a fishing exhibition uh, expedition looking for solutions to the problems they've already identified. So you, your business can be cluttered up with people who are never going to buy from you. So the great thing about marketing is you can actually use marketing to put them off, to say, I, I'm going to adopt a particular style, uh, and it's probably emotionally dominated, to a point where most people look at that and say, well, I'd never buy it from them. And you go, hallelujah, please don't ask me to, to explain how my product works, because you're never going to buy from me. And actually, we buy, we, when we did the research, we, we found that, of course, we buy from people we like. But you found a real big difference in, in 2006. It's not only do we buy from people we like, but because there's so much choice, we buy from people who are like us. So when you're, when you're building a business, what you can really do is take a profile of your business to attract only people who are like you. And, and fill the room with people who share your values, share your emotions, share your style before you can get to the product. And, and they will buy from you because you, you're like a good mate, you know, in, in, in that respect. And that's, that then puts off everybody else. They don't even, they don't even contact you. They get on your website and go, Oh, no, that's not for me. And they go, fantastic. Cause I'm not going to waste any time explaining to you how my product works. So you go, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, there's another one down the road that does the same thing, which I prefer because it's, uh, you know, it's a different colour. I, I think it's equally, uh, that's a perfectly valid uh, point that you, you buy from people they often say you know, like and trust and you have a rapport with and a, a connection with. But on the more transactional side of businesses, I think the, op well, the flip side of that is also true. You won't buy from businesses that you don't necessarily like. It, it doesn't mean you go to another business 
a competitor of that business because you like them. It's just that you like you dislike them less. Is what right. I'm trying to say. Okay. Well, so, okay. <laughs> so, for example, I I spend my day in dealing with property insurance claims, and obviously, it's all about insurance companies, and most of the purchases are made not because you you like to buy insurance or you like their fluffy adverts particularly, but you might have heard some bad things about insurance companies not paying out on claims, which is all in the news at the moment. For you know, yeah. And and so you would go to the one you don't know you, you know they pay claims you you know that they're not causing problems on paying claims for example so they're the least worst option okay so so to be a bit intellectual about this and I'm sorry about that Steve if it's if, too early <laughs> it's too early on the <laughs> spectrum of likability right if you yes. buy from someone who you dislike least that means you like them more than the other person <laughs> you might not like them at all <laughs> no you might in, in absolute terms you might not like them but uh, but I, actually I, I you know I, I would contend that actually there are many uh, stuffed meerkats sitting on shelves across the UK and on car boot sale uh, tables yes um where they they have proven that you can differentiate yourself in an insurance platform or or a, or, a, or a comparing insurance platform using a fluffy toy and that's very emotional and I think uh, you know go compare is a very emotional thing money supermarket if you actually look at the marketplace act from a from from a, uh, a marketing point of view they are dominated by emotional uh, links rather than necessarily the rational bit. What Goethe, uh, a very famous poet, once said, what the heart feels today, the head will understand tomorrow. So you're absolutely right that at a point where there's no room for heart feelings, you make a very rational decision. So if, if you're driving along the motorway and your petrol needle says zero, but you're a, um, a shell points collector, but it's a BP garage, you're going to go in the BP garage because you're running out of petrol. That's the kind of a need that you have to fulfill. Insurance, the insurance is a really interesting one. I've done a couple of insurance brands in my career, having done over 570 brands in total. And uh, and people in insurance don't get the emotional bit at all. It's fascinating. And they rely on, you've got to have a big problem before we can even sell to you. And that that's uh, the, other, the other dimension that sales people tend to be a bit stuck in problem solution selling. Um, as well, because that was the, that's a very transactional thing. You've got a problem. If you haven't got a problem, I'm going to tell you you've got a problem, and then I'm going to fix it for you. And you go, well, okay, well, that was that wasn't so helpful. I didn't realize I had the problem before, and then I suddenly had the problem. Now you fixed it, so I've got less money, and I'm in the same state as I was before I met you. And that's not such a cool place to be. Um, so I think it is still emotional, and it gets very emotional when you try and make a claim and you can't you can't make it. Then it oh, believe emotional. me. <laughs> Believe me, as, as someone who's been dealing with uh, claimants for thirty years, it gets very emotional. Right? They dump all that emotion. They dump all that emotion on me normally as well. It's interesting what you were saying about fluffy meerkats. You got the, the meerkat scenario, and you got the—is it the go compare scenario? The yeah. with the, um, the yeah, Italian the opera somewhere. singer chap who so happens as a Spurs fan. But we'll we'll come back to that in a bit. <laughs> let's, let's not. <laughs> um, they they are both fluffy and emotional in in respect, but when you and they but they are brands for uh, aggr- what we call aggregator sites. And when you go onto these aggregator sites to then choose your um, your insurance company you're going to go for, then it's basically price driven because all, all you all you see is well they're the cheapest, they're the most expensive, and then you then you take your pick because once you're on there, you don't give you don't give a monkey's. Well, well, I, I, I think that really reflects a lot of what I'm talking about now when I go on stage as a professional speaker and talk about this, because you're absolutely right. What in, in the vacuum that was left by an industry, 
of, of emotion. It has allowed um, things like consolidators and aggregators and Google and people like that to step into the vacuum and completely dominate the market. Uh, because the, the, and actually what it's done is it's relegated the providers to simply being the factory where the, the, the product or the service is made. And it must be deeply frustrating. Um, uh, and interesting enough, only, to my knowledge, only direct line have really tried to keep away from that and refuse to list on, on, on the aggregators and the consolidators. And, and they, part of their positioning is we're not on that. So we're, you know, uh, and I think that's really interesting. But if you look at what's happened, the brands that have emerged from nowhere. So the, 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 uh, Expedia's, the the Airbnbs, the Just Eats. What they what's fascinating about them is they've stepped into that emotional vacuum that's been left by all the providers who are so busy fighting about my burger's two p cheaper than the other burger and it's got a different type of patty to your patty or or my hotel is 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 you know more available than your hotel or it's in a different place. They've got so wrapped up in trying to fight with each other. The, the punters just went, okay, but where's the emotional engagement bit? And they've all stepped into that vacuum and created multi-million pound entry platforms, which are very emotional. So I will go to the Meerkat place to go and find, I don't really care, I'll, 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 I'll go on to U-Switch, which is a bit fun, the commercial and stuff like that, and just switch to the one that's the cheapest. You're right, because actually what the insurance industry, the utilities industry – the phone industry, the actually the, the fast food industry, what they've actually done is they they've be simply been relegated as, as as providers, manufacturers, and and commodity. And this, I I work with a lot of lot of brands who say we've become a commodity in our industry. And I go, yeah, because you didn't you didn't emotionally engage with your marketplace. You've you've you rationalised the hell out of your product to the point where where. Yeah, I get the minutiae of how you're thinking. I, I, I launched, um, I, I helped rebrand a, a, a business called City Link, um, which were London based down in um, South London. Rings a bell. I, can't, I, can't, I don't know well, what they do. Well, they, well they, used, they, they were a courier firm. They were a Couriers, long, that's right. A yes. long-standing courier firm. And they wanted the ads to say that uh, we have a 90, uh, 90-something, 90 I can't remember the figure exactly, but something like a 94.8% delivery on time in the right place of the thing thing and, and i went okay why is that so good and they said because our nearest competitor is 94.7 percent we're the number one oh. and and you, exactly you sit there and go great well, hold on no wait, wait 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 i can't tell the difference between that i mean it's my parcel arriving or isn't it <laughs> it's kind of and anyway it's simply unfortunately not around anymore they had a whole host of different problems but uh, um you, and I'm often sat in rooms with, with clients and say, yeah, the thing that makes us different is this tiny little difference between us and the rest of our competitors. You go, okay, but you're not emotionally engaging anyone, you know. And, no. uh, and unless you're first to market with that sort of scenario, you know, the, be the best in class for a particular niche thing, then it, it's irrelevant whether you're a second faster than the next one. Uh, uh, there's an example, I think, uh, the American marketing guru, Dan Kennedy, uh, magnetic marketing fame, I think, uh, used to give which was domino pizza in america they they set up that their shtick was they would deliver a pizza within 30 minutes or, or i think it was your money back that's right and yeah. they they set up their their hubs in and around university campuses yes because of course when you got these students sitting around having um you know a bit of wacky backy and a couple of beers the first thing they want is, is some carbohydrates and they want it pretty damn quick <laughs> so 
if if you say thirty minutes, they go, "That's bloody marvelous! I love some of that." <laughs> love some yes, of that, please. As a yeah. student, of course, you want it free, so you're challenging them to make sure they deliver it in thirty-one exactly. minutes. Exactly. <laughs> so you don't. You might get away with yeah, get away with that the first time, but not the yeah, second time. No, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So what are the challenges that you have seen? I mean, obviously the markets, the, 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 the marketing industry has changed dramatically over, over the years and in the period of time that you've been you've been involved in it how is it cha- how do you think it has changed significantly over the last you know five to ten years coming up to say march of, of this year then we can talk about how it's changed post lockdown what do you think have the, been the key drivers and changes well okay so let me let me give you a little potted history uh, so marketing marketing uh, 101 was really was was where marketing started which was the marketplace so people would grow grow uh, fruit and vegetables they'd re- rear livestock and then they take it to the local market and they sit behind stores and shout out at people and people would come and buy it from the market that was kind of one 101 and that lasted for for many hundreds of years until until kind of printing was created by Taxton Caxton and and Johannes Gutenberg and people like that um and then that allowed people to effectively start to broadcast um their, their wares. So what that allowed it to and it kind of underpinned the whole industrial revolution which it meant that you could produce products in, uh, in a factory and then you could run advertising and shout out to everybody who wasn't anywhere near the factory that you had this product you had shops and distribution channels and stuff like that and people could then buy your product from far and wide and that really categorized that was really marketing 2.0 whereby people were saying what's new and exciting and the chances are there was only kind of one type of product it would be unusual for two factories to open up and produce a product that was a competitor so it's probably almost so and that led actually ultimately to to really got accelerated when tv started uh in in the 50s um and then people like reese rosser created a, a, a the concept of the usp in the in the 50s and the unique selling point and that all characterized marketing 2.0 what we found then so i when i came into the industry my job was to produce, spend six months producing amazing TV commercials that cost hundreds of thousand pounds and diving into, you know, 10 million front rooms in, across the country with an amazing piece of our t- television that was better than the programs. Yeah, because there was more money spent on it. And that characterized the first part of my career. Then something seriously changed and it seriously changed in 1995. And in 1995, whether you can remember what happened in 1995, can you remember what happened in 1995? I can't remember what happened this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So so the internet, the internet arrived. The internet. Yes. Yes, I do. We used to, we used to get great discs uh, cover mounted onto magazines. We used to put them into our computers and then we'd have to buy a new computer because there was more data on the disc than my computer could cope with. And then, and and the, 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 uh, four six modem or whatever or it would take hours to download and this internet thing and we started to browse and we realized as 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 punters that um there was no such thing as a usp so the usp we found from a research point of view died in 1995 because we could go onto this search tool and realize that you probably weren't the only one or there was a choice of two or three you realize that they, if you managed to find the right page there were there were literally hundreds of choices so we then saw a characteristic uh, uh, in, the, in the next uh, 
to 10 years or so. So from 95 to about 2006, we saw people desperately trying to say, why buy from us rather than buy from our competitors? So the briefs that we were receiving in the agency were all about why we are better than other people. It's very competitive because we were trying to convince people to buy from us rather than our competitive set because people could go on this thing called the World Wide Web, the internet and everything, all that sort of thing. And again, one of the books I've got behind me uh, here is the this one here, which I, I will... I know people can't see, but it's um, sorry. Give it a shout out. It's the it's the World Wide Web directory. It's the yellow pages. It lists all of the world or all of the websites in the world. And I bought it when the web first came out. Um, and it lists all of the websites in the world. It's a, a directory. It's on my bookshelf. When you think about that conceptually, you know there, there were only two issues. Yeah, and then there weren't any more for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, it could be something to do with the number of websites doubling every hundred days or something in the world. <laughs> so, but yeah. we, won't, we won't do a lot. But it's kind of amusing that I've got a book which lists all of the websites in the world. So people used to go on there, find this thing. So we got to two thousand and six. And everybody was kind of excited. Uh, and we saw the briefs changing in our agency completely from away from why buy from us to work. So that was kind of marketing 3.0. It was kind of the why era. 1995 through to about 2006, we, we call that the why era. And in two, 2006, something else changed. And it became about how we buy from people. So, 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 so actually... What the brief said is this is a great way of buying this kind of product or service. So all of the brands that I've been working on for the last uh, 14 years are all about amazing processes, systems, great ways of doing it. And it touches on, you know, the things we talked about, the Just Eats, the Expedias, the Alibabas, the the Amazons, the Googles. These are all ways of buying things. They're dominant. Um, uh, I talk about Zappos a lot. You know, four years sold for 900 million to, 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 to Amazon. You know, just selling shoes, but other people's shoes. And so what businesses need to do now is they need to make sure every aspect of their of their organization, their systems and processes is marketing-led. So every time I touch your business, I go, that's cool, and that works for me, and that's built around 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 me. And that's what people are selling today. And that's fundamentally different. Now, from a marketing point of view, what broadcast media stopped working in 1995, and there wasn't really anything to replace it. Where we are today is a fundamental change. So when I came into the industry in the mid-80s, we used to shout at as many people as we could afford. That's what we used to do with, with Clever Creative. Today, when people contact you for the very first time, and this, this is a piece of research from a, a great book called The Challenger Customer. When people contact you for the very first time, they've made 57% of the decision to buy from you. So in other words, they're more likely to buy from you than not buy from you when they contact you for the first time. So what's changed today is actually people wake up in the morning and they have a challenge, an issue, a problem. And what, what would be the first thing you, you would do? So, so, so I'm going to say, right, Steve, come to where I am. I'm in Kent. I'm on the, uh, I'm on the high speed. So I'm 16 minutes out of King's Cross. Why don't you come down on the high speed? What's the first thing you're going to do to find out how Google to your address? You're going to Google me, right? Okay. So yeah. 88% of all buying decisions start with Google or Amazon. So I wake up with a problem. I then log in to Google. And I type in my problem. Now, here's the thing. If nothing appears on the front page, you need to go and see a doctor quickly, right? Because nobody else has got your problem, 
right? Okay. But that never <laughs> happens, doesn't it? No, it there's nothing happens. new under the sun. There must be something out there. Correct. So yeah. actually, then you're something. Uh, you've got one million re- results saying, here are lots of answers to your problem. So you dig around a bit, except you visit a few websites, you go to some peer-to-peer groups, you check out some uh, some TripAdvisor reports or something like that, and you look through it and you go, and, you go, and eventually you go, actually, do you know what? I've decided I'm going to go and buy from these guys. And then you contact the guys. So actually what marketing is about today is about enabling people to find you, and actually, you, you mentioned a phrase which was which was no like trust. Yeah, it's a very common phrase. It is fundamentally wrong, um, in my opinion. It's the actual phrase. If you're going to use a phrase like that, is like no trust. So actually, what you've got to do is you've got to like the person first. Then you find out what they do and whether they can fulfil what you're looking for, and then you go into the trust mode, which is maybe you go and buy something from them. So it's always been the wrong way around for me. I, every time anybody says it, I just go, "No, it's like no trust. It's not no like trust. I don't get to know you and then decide whether I like you or not. It's the other way around." Right? Yeah. And does that go for the liking an individual brand as well as a corporate brand? I, I think it. I think it's absolutely it, because it's back to what you were saying earlier. Steve, it, 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 it's uh, it's about the emotional engagement. Like is the emotional engagement. Unless I'm emotionally engaged, it doesn't matter how rational and clever you are, I probably will not buy you. Um, and actually, what's we have a, a phrase that uh, image match overrides fax match, but fax match does not override image match. So, um, so it may well be that uh, a certain type of car is an amazing specification, but I just would never buy it because just uh, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. Might be, I think um, a brand like uh, Kia. I mean, if you go if you go into a Kia car, the specification on there are amazing. I've got friends who own Kia cars, and I sit in there and go, "This is just. It is. I can see how you like this car, but I'd never own one. <laughs> just emotionally, I couldn't bring myself to own a, a Kia. I don't know why. It's irrational because it's emotional, um, and um, just it's just not a vehicle for me. And uh, lots of and uh, you know the the um, uh, the the Ladas got very good. I mean, I'm not, you know, and things like that. And, and you know, the Skodas, the Skodas, yeah. Skodas, a Volkswagen, isn't it? I mean, it's it's yeah, as good as a Volkswagen. But would you? Own but you, you 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 associate them with the uh, Eastern Bloc Europe from the uh, from the post war, don't you? Which is it's a terrible image to have. Absolutely, and, it's, and in fact, in, in many respects, um, you know what we're going through with the Black Lives Matter thing and all that sort of thing. I think there's a there's a there's a whole thing there. It's very emotive, and you can't solve it with rational things. It's you've got to embrace the emotional thing. Um, so, so where we are now is that marketing is has to be dominated by inbound thinking, not outbound thinking. Outbound is dead, in my opinion. It's all about inbound thinking. So, in other words, what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to create a presence in the market, a voice, a style, or whatever that is engaging with people who are already looking for you. They're already so is that all about is that so is is that all about content mark what we call content marketing putting relevant valuable free content out there as a starting point? I think that's absolutely right. I think that's exactly what it's about. It's all about content, but it's it's a particular type of content. So again, a lot of people talk about storytelling. You got to tell your story. Right. If you tell your story, everybody will like you because you're telling a story. It's all authentic, and actually, that's. I'm, I'm afraid to say I, d- I did psychology as a degree, so I'm, I'm kind of a bit blighted by that. But I'm afraid to say that the only 
the one thing? What's the one thing you think about most, Steve? Just, just generally, just off the top of your head, what's the one thing you think about? Uh, what's the one thing you think about most? And try and keep it clean, obviously. But uh, what, what oh, it varies from day to day. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's when it's not Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, I suppose it's it's my family. Okay, fantastic. It's... Yeah, great. Both, but well, one good answer. The other one is a relevant answer. <laughs> good, but the... <laughs> but no, it's my it's my fa- it's less and less Tottenham Hotspur actually at the, at the moment. It's, it's 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 more family. Yeah, but but okay. But I can tell you there is. I I have the answer to this. What you think about most, more than anything else, and the thing you think about most, more than anything else, is yourself. Okay, that's worrying. But well, you don't realise it because you've got to feed yourself, you've got to, you know, you've got to dress yourself, you've got to clean yourself. You, yeah, actually, yeah, that. it's it's the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? It's, it's certainly getting close to that. So, of course, well, the content you've got to provide people should service the self-interest of your buyers. That is all it's for, rather than what. We're telling your story. Nobody cares about your story. They don't care how long you've been going or what you're going. What they care about is what can you do for me? And so your content strategy should be all about what you can do from people. And that's dominated, again, from, from the whole challenge of sale uh, now, CB, Gartner thing now. It's all about insights. So your content strategy should be insightful. It should, when people read it, they go, do you know what? That's really, I hadn't thought of it like that. And I need to think about it like that. And then they go, right. So I'm, cause I'm, I've got this problem and I, I think that's the solution. Then you go, okay, but have you, don't forget, you must think about that and go, yeah, you're actually right. I hadn't thought about that. And then don't forget to think about this. Yes, yeah, so you're right. I hadn't thought about that. And, go, and in the end, you just go, ah, do you know what? There's so much to think about. These guys keep flagging things. I'm going to go and talk to them and say, you, you, you seem to be subject matter experts. You seem to know your onions. You seem to know what you're, you're talking about. Can we, can I just tell you what, what, I, what I think you could be a solution? And, 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 and that's when you've got them. So marketing is completely different from a content manager's point of view. So what you need to do is you need to go on uh, in, into, the, into the social media, into the online arena, and just, as you say, give away insights, give away useful information, give away clever things that make me go, do you know what? I hadn't thought of that. And before I buy this, whatever I'm going to buy next, I need to make sure. And interesting enough, um, you talk about insurance. Insurance is appalling at doing that. Absolutely appalling. They send you reams and reams of documents. I guarantee nobody's ever read their motor car policy, their home insurance policy. I guarantee they haven't. Well. <laughs> they just <laughs> and because I, it, and I can guarantee it. You know, and and, it, <laughs> and you know, there's no one page summary which says, you know, okay, what you need to know is the key aspects of this is when you come to claim from us, we are going to be very difficult to claim from, right? That actually the telephone number that we printed on this document, we change every three months so that actually when you ring it, it says this number's not available. And you've then got to spend four hours finding the real number, right? And then you've got to go through dial one for this, dial two for that, dial three for that, dial eight for this, dial 15 for that, dial 16 for that, and then we'll put you through to the right place, by which time you forgotten one to ten you know it's 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 designed in such a way to make it very difficult because of course the whole principle of underwriting is that nobody claims (laughs) so so because the lot you know it's 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 the worst thing an insurance broker can do is wake up in the middle of the night to a storm because they think, "Oh no!" I'm and by the way, I, by the way, I haven't primed you on any of these. These are real life ex- lived experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so you know, so and I, I, I think 
no, the insurance industry could do well to explain how insurance works, what it's based on. Uh, is it really about, about making people not, because I know that's not true. That's not how insurance works. I know that's not how pensions work. I know all of these financial institutions, they have a model, but they don't share it with anyone because they're worried that people will go, okay. And the, the percentages on an insurance can be really low because of claims. And actually, insurance industry should set up and say, do you know what? We want to give you your money back. Imagine say, taking that position because things happen. And when things happen, because you've been bright enough to, to insure it, we want to make sure that you are not disadvantaged in any shape or form as a result of making a really good decision uh, to, to take out an insurance with us. We are working on the basis that we take a 1,000 people 10, 100, you know, let's say 50 are going to claim and the rest of you are going to fund each other. But you're part of a community. You're part of a, a shared sleep well community, um, which just says, look, we're all putting in a little chipping in a little bit together. Some people are going to take out of the pot and some people aren't. And that's true of, 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 of national insurance and tax to the government Absolutely. and all that sort of thing. And we, I, do you know what, Steve? I get really frustrated that the industries don't, don't come up and, 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 and say, look, this is, how, this is how we built this. Yeah. And when it works, it's brilliant. And when it doesn't work, we sweat, we sweat a lot. Yeah. Because, it's all about the numbers. It's all about monitoring. And people will go, okay, well, fair enough. I, I, I get that. I get that. But every year... In fairness, there are, one or two, um, there are one or two players in the marketplace sticking to the insurance theme, what we call the high net worth insurers. I won't mention any names, but they probably know who they are, who will charge a far higher premium, will underwrite much more valuable property, shall we say, in high net worth people, wealth, wealthy people, uh, wealthy assets, and will underwrite the policy at the beginning rather than making a fuss when you make the claim. They'll take a higher premium. They'll know there's no warranties, endorsements, and all that sort of shit when you come to make the claim. And they will go around. They used to go around with a checkbook. And if you had a claim, they'd send someone around. Oh, yes, Mrs. Miggins, you've had a claim. Here's a check for 20000 Whatever, whatever. As opposed to the vast majority of insurers who will do everything in their power, as you say, to avoid making a payment. And they'll have all the small print there to, to back them up as well. So I think they're, you know, teaching the buyer how to buy well will get people to buy from you, you know. So and that's the way to do it for all businesses, all businesses. Like that. Yeah. So so rant over on the insurance, <laughs> the insurance industry. <laughs> so we so we've decided that we've got to move into a content marketing sort of world. Yeah. That's difficult for a lot of people and at the the solopreneurs, the small businesses, the SMEs, who are, are a don't know how to go about doing that creating content because they're not skilled in creating content and writing good copy yes and don't know how to even once they've done it they don't know what platforms to do how to get the message out there how to respond to it when it comes in how to then take you through a sales process or a funnel for one of a better word it's it's a it's complicated stuff isn't it i think it can be and i think what's been really interesting is the the, the old advertising agency of which I thrived in for for at least a good 25 years of my career um, has been replaced by the so-called digital agency and I'm, a, I'm an active member of a, a digital community what's always fascinating for me is they like most businesses are technicians trying to sell and technicians can't sell for love nor money because what they do is they're immersed in the whole rational transactional bit and they come out and they say we're we'll get better ratings on seo than this and that and other and we have all these clever algorithms and everything and everyone just 
sort of glazes over and goes, well, I don't really know. I think it's much simpler uh, than, than, than you think. And here, here's the formula for it. The first thing you have to do is you have to define your value proposition as a business, irrespective of whether you're a one-man business or you're a big corporation. I make a considerable amount of money from helping people define value propositions because very, very few organizations. What do I mean by a value proposition? I mean a set of values that cover your behaviors, how you benefit people, what you want people to believe about you and what you want to be famous for. Those are the value sets that sit with inside of us. Now, if you define those, then what you do is you just take one, one benefit that you have, yeah, and you sit down and you write stories, examples, how people can do it, about that one benefit. And then what you do is you place those stories in the places where you know your prospects are going. So not, you don't have to broadcast it everywhere. So, for example, if it's, if it's kind of professional, then you might choose LinkedIn. If it's, if it's real B2C, then you might choose Facebook advertising. If it's really informative and there's kind of a community around it, you might choose Twitter to link to blogs. You would write blogs. You might put the blog on LinkedIn. You might put it on your website. You might uh, release it as an email blast. And actually what you can do, Steve, is take one piece of content and repurpose it across lots of different things. Stick a, a fancy picture on it. Use a bit of Canva or go on Fiverr.com and get somebody to do you a nice picture with a nice headline on it and stuff. Stick that on so it's a little bit more appealing. And repurpose it everywhere. Just use the same piece of content. So it's actually much simpler than you think. The challenge, the where it gets very difficult, is sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and going, right, what am I going to say today? That's hard. That's hard, you know, and and that's where most people start. Is they're saying, no, let let me write. So how do you do that? Okay, so very quickly, what you would do is sit down and and literally pour yourself a drink or make yourself a cup of coffee or tea, and literally spend five or ten minutes writing down all the good things that your business does. Just write them down randomly. I, I use a post-it notepad. We can rip up bits of paper. Just go right. Good things. I make. I make good tea because I'm having a cup of tea. I make. Uh, I eat great biscuits. I like my office. I. Uh, I provide a great service. Um, I've got a great product. It's a great platform. And, and those are the foundation stones of, and then you take each one of those and go, well, why is my tea so good? My tea is so good because I, I know I've gone through a whole selection of different teas. I know that I put milk in first before the water. I use this kind of mug. So I know that the volume of water to that tea bag works. And suddenly there's a whole science to making a cup of tea. That's what you tell people. You say, when I make a cup of tea, I do it this way. I use this size of mug because I know this size tea bag with that amount of water in and that amount of milk and that with it makes a perfect cup of tea. I have this color chart, which I match the milk color to the thing, blah, blah, because I know that's exactly the right. You can make tea sound amazing. <laughs> now, you can do that with any aspect of your business, how you write a proposal document, how you, uh, how you, um, how you quote people, how, you know, and I'm talking more in your industry, whether you can give people tips. If you're in, in insurance, why not? And you're doing house insurance. Why not send people a book on how to keep your house clean and how to clean different surfaces or how to polish artwork or keep artwork on the wall clean or, you know, stuff, just tips and tricks. And people go, oh, so I really like working with these guys because they kind of they help me. I've got a marble top thing and a glass thing there, and I've got a display cabinet, and I've got jewelry, and I know how to. And they give me all of this extra help to 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 understand. That's what you're good at. That's what you're good at. And just 
take your subject matter expertise and just tell everybody why you because the reality steve is we're not selling products and services we're selling time we're selling the the fact that somebody spent in my case 35 years spending every day helping brands come to market and, and, and become famous i might know a few things about it not everything but i might know a few things i certainly know more than somebody who's been in it for four years yeah i certainly know more than 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 you know I, I i've been my tar has been on the ground a little bit more than seth godin for example so i i love seth godin as you know because i've got all of his books but but you know he hasn't been at the, the the grindstone with the thing watching the sparks fly off you know it's it's it's, it's it, he does that far less he He's just a very clever man and a brilliant communicator, and frustratingly so, because he writes stuff and you just look at it and go, oh, I should have written that. <laughs> he makes it very simple. He does. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's interesting what, it's, yeah. brilliant interesting what you say about time, because a couple of years ago, my wife took early retirement from uh, mm-hmm. teaching, teaching profession, kids with special needs, to set up her own consultancy. And she's always been in mainstream education, working for the local authority. And then to come into having to promote herself and market herself and sell herself, she said, oh, why are they going to pay this? And they... I said, hang on a second, you've got 30 gazillion years. Well, she's not that old, but a lot of years of experience that people just don't have. This is your time. This is your knowledge. This is what's between your ears that people will pay good money for because they just don't know how to access it. You've got it. So, you know, if you've got it, flaunt it, which is... Put, putting it out there. There's a great yeah. story about Picasso. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but he was sat. No, go on. He was sat in a cafe, and a lady, a lady came over and said, oh, "Excuse me, are you Mr. Picasso?" And he said, "Yes, uh, I, I am." And she said, "Oh, I don't suppose you could you could draw me something." So he took a serviette and, in a minute, drew this 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 picture and handed it to her. And she said, "Oh, wow!" And he said, "That'll be five thousand francs." And uh, she said, five thousand francs? Does it take you two minutes?" He said, "No, no." No, he said, it's taken me a lifetime to be able to do that in two minutes. That's what you're paying for. Anyway, and allegedly she paid the 5,000 francs. So, so you know, it's a, exactly that story. And the trouble is with solopreneurs and small business, small businesses, is they sort of take themselves for granted. And then they do stupid things like not pay themselves and things like that. But they take themselves for granted. And yet the buyers are buying them. And and so I spend a lot of time. I do, I do a lot of mentoring. I'm mentoring 16 business owners at the moment, and I do a lot of mentoring. And most of it is to explain to them that they are amazing, like you did with your wife. They are amazing people. They've gone through a life journey that even if I said I'm going to do exactly the same as you, I'm never going to be able to replicate it. I'm never going to catch up. I'm never going to do anything. So actually, these people should really sell. And actually, you're right. That's why you don't sell time for money when you're when you're when you're. I, I, I don't use, there are many words I don't use, but consultancy is one of the words I never use because it's a time for money word. It's a sales word um, and it's the wrong word. Actually, you're a subject matter expert. Would you like my expertise? Yes. Right. Okay. Well, let me explain what you're going to get as a result of my expertise. Let me explain how that's going to make a difference to your business, what that means in real monetary terms for you. So if I help you become a million pounds better off, I tell you what, I want this amount of money for you, helping you do that. And I go, actually, I'd like fifty thousand pounds for that, and so you're going to help me put a million pounds on. I go, yeah, that's cheap. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, and of course, put in those terms. Yeah, and that's how you do it. That's how you do it because it's all about the benefits. So, post COVID, March this year, we're not we're not quite we're not quite post. We're sort of inter 
into COVID. Yes. <laughs> what what are, do you see more of the same or content driven marketing, or do you see things changing further because more and more people, I suspect, are going to be working remotely, working on their own, becoming self employed. There's going to be a lot of unemployment and people looking to get into self employment, and therefore more marketing opportunities for people. How do you how do you see things moving forward? God, uh, you know what. You know that's a naughty question because I don't think there's anyone that can answer that question. No, um, it's naughty. Think, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's all right. So let, let me. I'm not as convinced about this new normal as everybody keeps talking about. I think we've got a long way to go. I think we've probably it's going to be uh, at least another year, possibly over eighteen months. I think we're going to we're going to sort of traverse to the end of 2021 before. Uh, and and I, I use this 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 phrase recently so currently we've learned to uh die with covid19 and what we need to do is we need to learn to live with covid19 and in the same way as we live with flu i think you'll start to see the numbers demonstrate that actually the impact of covid is only marginally higher than the impact of flu now i've never seen an economy global economy close down as a result of a flu epidemic uh, or even a flu pandemic because it affects older people and who cares about older people anyway, allegedly, you know, it's, 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 whereas this is, you know, this is, this is, this is taken out younger people. So it's much more serious, you know, actually it's not, it's exactly the same. So I think we will, we will be adapting to living in a cleaner world where we're more aware of cleanliness than we possibly have anywhere. So I think we'll see a lot of change there, but very quickly, once we have, either got the uh, the vaccine or we have herd immunity proven to be uh, enable us i think you'll find that human beings will start to gravitate back to exactly the same way we we were before because we we you know it's it, listen it's great doing what we're doing right now Steve, but it's not the same as you and me sitting and you normally do these live anyway so exactly it's, it's never what i intended or, or no, prefer doing. and and i think that's true for the majority i think the other thing is that there is a fallacy called work-life balance there is no such thing as a work-life balance that's a a, a conspiracy of the of the the business owners that they perpetuate among society it's just your life but life is made up of 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 a home life and and a work life you know and what the work life does is it gives individuals purpose in a different way to home life home life oddly enough and we, we talk about this for me is a much more emotional purpose Whereas the work life is the more rational purpose. In other words, I go to work to earn the money to lead the life I'd like to lead when I get back home again. And so I, I'm not as convinced that working at home is fulfills the rational purpose and the emotional purpose. In fact, what they're doing is they're crossing over each other and that's causing an absolute nightmare for a lot of people. And we're going to see a lot of mental health uh, issues um, uh, and and the domestic violence <clears throat> numbers will start to come out and all that sort of thing. Because I don't, I think we need to, we, we as a, a society have created this uh, rational purpose, which we call work and this emotional purpose that we call our family life or our home life or whatever. And, and these, t- these two don't blend into each other quite so easily. So I think in the short term, it will feel like it's going to be profound. We're going to see uh, loads of businesses are going to liquidate. They, uh, I think you'll start liquidations will probably start happening around November and then hit a peak around Mar- uh, around May next year. And we'll see lots and lots of this. So we will see a shrinking 
business community, quite simply because they've taken the uh, a Sybil or a Bibble and they will work out that if they liquidate the company and then phoenix it the following day, they won't have to pay that back to the government. That's a, a, an oversight by the government. Again, I don't fully understand why they can give one company like British Airways half a billion pounds of free money through furlough and redundancy schemes and everything, but then all the, the 4.2 million small businesses they lend them lend them money right okay and we have to all pay it back actually if you can get it i unfortunately fall into the character the group of one million or just under one million businesses that are not entitled to any handouts from from the government and any so because i'm a director of a sole director of a business uh, and therefore i can't furlough myself etc so all these things so it, it's, it's fascinating so i think there'll be a lot of that so i'm Clearly, in the short term, while the fear is still in there, we will be two meter distancing at work. There'll be split workforces. But I think people will yearn for the time when they can laugh in the kitchen together and around the water cooler and walk to the local uh, soup parlor and queue outside and buy soup at lunchtime and stand outside the pub in, in Frith Street and drink till the, the sun goes down and all that sort of thing. I, I, just... I agree. And I, th- and I think people have very short term memories as oh, well. I think that's right. And once the numbers in this, this R number and all the other numbers are, are back down to sort of um, relatively normal stats yeah. and we get the go ahead to, to return, return, I think people will, you know, a couple of time and think, what was all that about? <laughs> and we'll be back to not, you know, there may be screens, you know, and there may be some form of masks and yeah, cleanliness yeah. will be something. And I, certainly, the the you know, I, I saw an article recently where they have resumed cancer treatments, and what they've done is they've they've managed to to create a, a theatre where everything is covered in plastic and clean and stuff like that. And so that awareness. Of, of 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 being clean i think can only benefit us and people will find better ways of doing things the the upside the the other upside on this is it's forced everybody to really sit down and work out what it is they do can they be more efficient i i have also a, a, a real optimism that we might be a more productive being the least productive country in europe um we might become a much more productive uh, country because you're right if people can balance um, working three days in an office and two days at home. You and I know that when you work at home, you work far harder um, uh, um, than 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 when you work in the office because you fiddle around and you go on Facebook. And actually, when you're when you're, I, I'm I'm averaging four to five hours a day on Zoom or or a video thing. It's very intensive because you've got to look at the screen. I've got to watch you. I can't see what you're doing below the screen. I, I don't know what's going on in Thank your. I don't know if somebody's coming in and people, you know, people walking with cups of tea. So there's obviously somebody else in the room, which I have no sense of. It's exhausting that. Uh, actually, when you're sat in an office, you kind of got this 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 extra dimension, which you have the, the non-verbal going on around you. We don't get that on, on the video thing. So I, I think people will tire of if, if this is the way work is, where we're just going to video all the time and never meet and shake hands and hug and and have coffee and choose cake and 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 drink beer and and laugh about which kind of gin gin you're going to have and whether it's got juniper berries in it or something like that and and try out new places in london and you know if we can't do that anymore i just i'm not sure it's going to be as pleasant as we yeah. <laughs> but, and talking of places to visit in london your beloved team <laughs> chelsea <laughs> uh, you're looking you, you, you're looking forward to uh, getting back to the bridge and uh you know what Monday? I, I so I, I i'm in a bit of uh, a dilemma i i've I haven't really felt 
that the overpaid Premier League footballing community has really acknowledged the plight of the people who pay harder and cash to go and watch them uh, in a way. So I've actually had a, a little bit of a wobble, I don't mind telling you, which is a combination of actually have I really missed the football, really missed it. Mm, it's been quite nice doing DIY projects on a, a could be a Saturday, Sunday, Monday night, Friday night, whatever. The, the, it's not... I, I do miss, because I'm old, I miss the three o'clock kickoffs on Saturday and that was when it was and you could build it in and you could build a life around them. Whereas now I'm forever checking on a Thursday. When are we actually playing this weekend? Oh, it's Monday night. Right, okay, right, okay. This, you know, maybe I should yeah. sort, is sort my... Sky? Is that is, uh, is it BT Sport? Sport? Is it now yeah. BBC? Oh, no, I know. Just, <laughs> it's just all, it's all become... So I haven't really missed any of that. I've been a bit disappointed in the foot. And then, of course, I see that Chelsea make some new signings and that they want to be up against Liverpool and Man City. And, and you think, oh, do you know, that could be... Having, having sat, been a season ticket holder for 38 years, you just think, oh, do you know what? That, mm, oh, that, that could be quite fun. And oh, well, <laughs> so, so now what I'm not looking forward to in any shape or form is well, obviously Liverpool winning the league, um, but the 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 but the the uh, uh, sorry, all you Liverpool fans, just it's just banter. Don't don't get too stressed. <laughs> just, um, just a ton of jealousy. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. But yeah, I, well, no, not really. I think they no. Anyway, uh, they you can't you can't dislike Klopp. That's the trouble. It's really hard. And uh, and he has put he has put some great football together. But I'm not looking forward to all these behind closed door seeing out the season thing. I'm really not looking forward to that because. It's just going to be soulless, isn't it? It's soulless. I think is, is the right is the right word. It's a really good word for that. It's going to be soulless. It's just going to be kind of just playing it out, you know. And that's going to feel wrong. They have. Uh, I don't know about you, but they've um, they've offered me the money back at Chelsea for my for my four games that I four home games that I'm not going to see, and but or yeah, I can carry it over to my new. Yeah, we got we got, the, we got the same deal. Yeah, and you <laughs> thought, oh, okay, well, do I bribe? Do I take the money? <laughs> Well, it's not really a bribe, is it? Because I've, I've given them the money. They say, well, either we'll get, because they haven't said that. I think what they're going to do is they're going to take the value of the money and take that off the season ticket. They're going to put the season ticket prices up, right? Because obviously they've missed tons of revenue. So actually, when you work it out, you, you, you're you not going to have benefited at all. You're, um, because they're going to put it up by that amount, the four games amount. Because what's that? That's, you know, 10% or something. Um, well, it's not. It's, it's, it's considerably more than that. Um, and uh, so it's 20%. So they'll probably put it up 10%. So you, you're, you're going to get a bit of money. So I, I couldn't really decide whether I'd take the money in that and stick it in the account and send it back to them just to annoy them or whether I let it roll over or we could give it to charity. That would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, so, so that would be really kind. If ever there was an emotional relationship between a, a oh, exactly. business and a consumer, foot, football has got to be the biggest one, hasn't it? Really, absolutely. Or any, sport that you, any sport that you love and runs in the family blood. It's a, absolutely it's right. A, absolutely it's a killer. Right. Yeah, because it's, it's it's tribal. You know, as our brands, brands are a tribal thing. But uh, yeah, so so I'm 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 in mixed emotions. Of course, the moment if Chelsea are on the box, I shall be watching it because <laughs> because I'm a. Um, so so and then we'll we'll see and you know i probably won't look forward to next season because i don't think that's i think that's going to be a bit itsy bitsy as well so maybe the season after but you can't the trouble i don't know about you but if you give up the season ticket you don't ever get it back so you have to kind of keep it rolling and no well allegedly there's still a waiting list i struggle to believe that but <laughs> uh, I think on that note, before, yeah. before we end up having virtual fisticuffs. No, no, I, th- I think um, 
the wait, yeah. waiting to win something at Tottenham list is, is quite long, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's, that's part of the fun, though. Oh, fun, fun. I mean, once, you, once you've won it, the emotions drained out of you. <laughs> you, you, you can't be bothered after that. It's, it's the fun. It's the, it's the anticipation that kills you. Oh, tell me about <laughs> it. Tell me about it. Um, so, but let, let's, just, let's just start to wind up. Now, a couple of things before we do. I always ask all, all my guests, and hopefully you've given a little bit of consideration, I ask all my guests to mention one or two places in London that are particularly personal or pertinent to them um, that, that means something to them. It may It's not necessarily somewhere famous. It doesn't have to be changing the guards at Buckingham Palace or anything like that, but somewhere in London that is personal and means something to you. Have you had a chance to give it any thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, no, 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 thank you for the question. I thought it was a good question because it did make me think. And and actually, I think probably the, uh, uh, the, the, the two things that I've got are where I have literally experienced the most emotion so you're in in line with what we've just been talking about uh the the, the long way so what the and first better not be stanford bridge no no actually <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually it's the old wembley uh-huh yeah it's the old wembley so so my 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 chelsea fandom started when i was uh seven and chelsea won the cup uh in 1970 and um and i started becoming a chelsea fan because all my friends were probably now taxi drivers were all Man United fans and they were red and I went for blue. And I, I, I did a rather weird thing. I was in the Cotswolds and I got a piece of string and I, I found the nearest, nearest first division club to me using a piece of string, which rather weirdly was Chelsea because it was in West London because uh, the Villas and the Birminghams weren't there. And so was, otherwise I could have been a, a Villa Birmingham fan or whatever. So, so I ended up picking, picking Chelsea. Um, we went on, won the European Cup. So I was, I was on a roll and then we won nothing absolutely nothing for 26 years until that day on in 1997 where we 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 scored after 42 seconds and then eddie newton scored the second on the 82nd minute so we had a, a tense time and we won is that the well, famous di matteo goal it is the di matteo goal and yeah now we're talking about emotion yeah you will know this and most football fans will know this um is is when you're following a sport that's about winning and there are some ultimate prizes which you have never won to then win it after 26 years and uh and and so i i i love it when leicester do well and 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 win the league and you know and you, you just see the unbridled joy in 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 the fans that's how i felt on that day in in 1997 and it was a, a feeling i've never i've never experienced before and and one I've never really had since, even though we won the Champions League and and won countless trophies since that instance. And of course, we also won the last uh, FA Cup at the old Wembley before they tore it down and moved to Cardiff and then and the new Wembley. We also won, the, I think, the new, the first new one in the new thing. It was a bit, all a bit weird. It was a good time for us. Um, so the, the old Wembley is is, is definitely a um, a place where. I, I experienced that. The, the other, the other thing is oddly, oddly enough, is something completely different, which is the Guild Hall. And six years ago, now I think it is, might have been only five. I was um, invested as a founding freeman of the Guild of Entrepreneurs. Now, now the the, the guilds in London go back thousands, over a thousand years, and they are a, a fascinating insight into how London works, how the city of London works. And and I don't know how much you know about the guilds, but you couldn't work in the city of London unless you went through, a, you served an apprenticeship through a guild. And 
there hadn't been any guilds for many, many years. And uh, our, our founder, a chap called Dan Dotter, who's not with us anymore, sadly, um, he, he recognised that in, in a more modern day, the entrepreneur, as, as, as is classed, is, is the modern day version of the saddlers and the, and the vintners and the, and the candlestick makers and all those sorts of things. And, and the entrepreneur was, was a really big and I'm passionate about, about us 4.2 million small businesses that, you know, have a major contribution to the economy. So just being, you know, sworn in at the Guild Hall, the very epicenter on top of, you know, the, the Roman Colosseum in London, which is underneath the Guild Hall and, and, and just the history and, and then having access to these amazing Guild Halls or, or halls like Draper's Hall and all these different things. Cause we don't, we obviously don't have our own, our own uh, meeting place because we were very new. So we've now got 153 freemen. We're always looking for more. Um, we're making huge in, in, inroads into into helping young entrepreneurs uh, and, and all people who've been experienced in producing businesses and, and successful sharing their experience, their knowledge. So the Guildhall, and I, 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 you'll, you will be familiar with the Guildhall. It's quite an amazing place to just stand Beautiful. in there. Stunning. And it's stunning. It's awe-inspiring. It's yeah, awe-inspiring. Absolutely awe-inspiring. And so yeah. to, 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 to be made a freeman there and, and really locked down my relationship with London, you know, having been, having been an out of Londoner originally. And now, you know, I, I, I can't say I live out in, in, in Kent, but, 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 uh, but my, well, for the purposes of the podcast, you're a Londoner. We, we, we don't care what anybody else <laughs> no. says. You're, you're, you're a Londoner. I I, 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 they're too diverse, but, but wonderful, um, wonderful examples of places in London. Wem- Wembley for me also holds many happy, Memories were a few miserable ones as well. <laughs> yes, but uh, no, going going there with my dad and watching the cup final eighty one. Yes, you know, got long got, got to have a long memory to be a Spurs fan. Guild Guildhall. I've interviewed some some great guests in the Guildhall. Uh, Mark Wheatley is a councillor based there. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. S- S- Spirit Delamere, who's yes, um, indeed, yes, one of your free free men. She's more recent. Uh, the, yes, yes, I think she talked about three years Freeman. ago. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they're they're two two cracking places. So. Wrapping up, how can people get in touch? How can they find you and find out more about your services? You've got to do your marketing bit now, your sales bit. Yeah, it's okay. Close everyone. Well, (laughs) the reality is you just need to Google Barnaby Winter with a Y, right? Yeah. And then you ought to be able to find me. Otherwise, I'm probably not doing what I say on the tin. Um, (laughs) LinkedIn is also obviously a great way. Uh, So the the weirdness is I'm I'm, I'm a W-Y-N-T-E-R, which... which, uh, belies the origin of my family was we, we are a direct descendant of the Wintour brothers who were the uh, the uh, Guy Fawkes uh, originators um, uh, and they were the, the two brothers that instigated the whole Guy Fawkes uh, escapade so we are we have a descendancy from the Wintour brothers Thomas I think it is um, was the one that had children I don't think Robert had children and um, but we're W-Y-N-T-R uh, again due to my uh, my um, grandfather getting uh, writing it wrong on the birth certificate when my father well, no so my grandfather's father writing the wrong thing in um in uh, london registry office um he wrote wy down instead of wi which all the rest of our family are so so it's barnaby winter with a y wy and uh, look me up on the internet look me up on linkedin and of course i have a website which is www.barnabywinter.com so you can go there as well so uh, um, all you've got a book out as well i think haven't you and maybe writing another one 
and I'm in the I'm in the process of just finalising the second one. Yes, which uh, yeah. which uh, so the first one is the brand the brand bucket the brand bucket the brand make, bucket. make your marketing work. Yeah, and that's that's um, it has it appears to be as relevant today as it as it did uh, as it was when I wrote it, which is which is a good thing because most books tend to, to have a shelf life, but uh, this still seems to be working. So this is good. Well, it's been grand having a chat with you this morning, uh, Barnaby. Thank you ever so much for your valuable time. It's been a real pleasure, real pleasure. Let's hope that uh, we can get together in the real world <laughs> yeah, so we maybe sometime, sometime share, soon. Share a game together. <laughs> share a game. Yeah, maybe, maybe a cup final at the, uh, no, the, new, I, no, the, the we, new Wembley. We capitulate against you in cup finals, don't we? So it's, uh... <laughs> oh, blimey, you're going back a few years. What did you beat us in recently? Uh, 1-0. You beat us 1-0 in the... Uh... Oh, well, that, not that recently. What? That was the uh, famous headed goal by Jonathan Woodgate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think you've stuffed us a few times since then. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. But that's a conversation for no, another day. Love, look, I, as with everybody, it's going to be great to be able to meet up in the flesh again and, uh, and enjoy each other's company in, a, in an entirely way. But it's been a real pleasure being with you today, Steve. So thank you. Thank you very much, Barnaby. Take care. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you, and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.